Welcome to Lynn Cullen Live, talk radio without the static. Email your questions and comments to lynn at pghcitypaper.com. And now your host, Lynn Cullen. Uh, hey, hello. I'm actually going to try to do the show solo <laughs> today. <laughs> Let's see if I can still remember how. Uh, just a few uh, tidbits uh, after the funeral. Uh, I was able to listen to most of it um, um, in my car um, after I left the show. And, and then later I was able to, uh, you know, see some of the interactions. Um, I, uh, I, the, the one thing that I, uh, that I heard that I found really, I guess, wonderful was that, uh, H.W. Bush, uh, had an awful lot of input into that service. Um, he pretty much chose all the eulogists and in fact two of the eulogists um, came to visit him and read <laughs> their eulogies to him. Um, and I think it was uh, John Meacham, the historian, who's, who said that, uh, well, Bush gave him the the go ahead. He he also uncomfortably said, "I mean, there's just too much of me in there, isn't there?" He was always <laughs> uncomfortable. Um, it, you know, it's a it's a particular uh, kind of uh, upper class wasp um, ideal, I guess, or virtue, if you think think it's that that you do not uh, brag. You do not uh, speak of yourself. You do not, you know, make yourself the center of attention. And he was very well schooled in that by his uh, by his mother. So he was uncomfortable uh, till till the day he died, uh, being uh, praised, being the center of uh, of attention. Um, I heard somebody saying that when they opened his presidential library and all this past presidents uh, came to, you know, extol his virtues, and he he was just miserable. He was sitting, you know, in the front row staring at the floor through, uh, through, through the whole thing. But uh, Meacham and also the former uh, Canadian Prime Minister, uh, Brian Mulroney, uh, both read their eulogies to Bush before he died. I'm Probably all of you are ahead of me on all of this, uh, but I'm just passing that on to anyone who didn't uh, didn't see it, uh, that piece of information. Uh, what else? Speaking of uh, Canadian prime ministers, I did watch uh, the boxing match that Susan had uh, had uh, mentioned the other day of the current uh, Canadian Prime Minister, <laughs> Justin Trudeau, before he was the Prime Minister in some charity uh, boxing match where he was supposed to, I guess, you know, be destroyed. And instead, he, <laughs> they called the fight. It was just a three-round fight, but the fight got called in the third round because uh, Justin really just pummeled the heck out of this guy. Um I didn't enjoy it as much as Susan. She's really, she's really into physically slugging people. <laughs> I myself, I mean, she mentioned I am hostile. I have hostility, but I don't expect. I'm verbal. It, more, I'm not physical. I don't want to hit anybody. She, she really does. She wants to slug people. And I clearly Hillary Clinton wanted to slug <laughs> Donald Trump at the funeral. And I don't. Good God. He was just the other day talking again about how she should be in jail. I mean, what, you're supposed to be civil to a guy like that? Are you kidding me? I think um, Philip Rucker, writing in the Washington Post, did a very good job of describing the extraordinarily historic and awkward uh, meeting of the current president with the former presidents. I mean, it was... And you know what? Speaking of that 
wa high class wasp uh, ethic where the Bush family made clear they did not want a rerun of John McCain's funeral in the same venue uh, where Trump was not invited, where there was, uh, you know, just clear excoriations of, uh, of him and his presidency. Um, the Bushes were very clear. They didn't want that. And, uh, and yet... There was, no, oh, there was no way that Mulroney or anybody else getting up to talk about H.W.'s life, just by talking about it, that you, the listener can't help but contrast what they were saying with the current occupant of the White House. And so even without saying it, it was a rebuke of, uh, of Trump. There was no way. There was no way of avoiding that, uh, simply by talking about the way that H.W. comported himself. Um, also, though, I, what I was—I think I lost my train of thought. The upper-class wasp thing of we don't make a scene. We everything is is handled traditionally and. I actually think, as I saw clips of Trump sitting there in the National Cathedral, miserable, uncomfortable, looking like he was barely able to contain himself, like a pouting child forced to sit through some grown-up thing, in some ways, that what the Bushes asked for was probably the greatest way of putting him down that there was. Much more effective than, like, taking him on in any way. Just forcing him to sit quietly and not have it be about him. <laughs> wow, that's huge punishment. Not have it be about him. And listening to people recount how a decent human being, an honorable man, approached the job. Uh, he had to be unbelievably uncomfortable and he, all you have to do is, is look at it to see how miserable he was so in some ways the bushes by saying we will not have this be about him we will not we will offer him a invitation a handshake a, you know we will be perfectly civil to him might have been the best way of getting him I don't think that that was what they were thinking, but as I look at him in the videos, <laughs> it's incredible. Philip Rucker, who I mentioned a second ago in the Washington Post, wrote the piece for the Post on the funeral, and I think really did a, a great job if you hadn't been able to see it. I'll read a bit. From the moment he crossed the transept of the soaring Washington National Cathedral, tore off his overcoat, and took his seat in the front pew, President Trump was an outsider. When the others sang an opening hymn, his mouth did not move. When the others read the Apostles' Creed, he stood stoically, mute. And when one eulogist after another testified to George H.W. Bush's integrity and character and honesty and bravery and compassion, Trump sat and listened, often with his lips pursed and his arms crossed over his chest. Trump 
he was miserable. Rucker later goes on to say, Trump was in the company of all of his living predecessors for the first time yesterday. And the encounter <laughs> was plainly uncomfortable. When Trump and the First Lady stepped into the cathedral, uh, you know, a cool hush had come over the pews. Trump handed his coat to a military aide, took his seat on the aisle next to his wife, and then Trump handed his coat and, and with uh, maybe, okay, wait a minute, three past seated to her side. Uh, with three past presidents, first lady seated to her side. First uh, was the president Trump said was illegitimate, Barack Obama. Then the first lady he called a profligate spender of tax dollars, Michelle Obama. Then the president he called the worst abuser of women, Bill Clinton. Then the first lady and secretary of state he said should be in jail, Hillary Clinton. And then the president he said was the second worst president behind Obama, Jimmy Carter, and then Rosalind Carter, who for some reason he hasn't gotten around to trashing. Imagine that. Imagine that. And anybody on the internet or on cable TV suggesting that Hillary Clinton was... Uh, rude <laughs> by staring straight ahead is out of their mind. The rudeness was embodied in toto in the current president. So, just saying, You had to wonder what was going through uh, Trump's head. While uh, Canadian Prime Minister was just extolling the leadership qualities of, of, uh, of Bush and of how he didn't hate anybody, <laughs> Trump sat there crossing his arms over his chest holding his hands like he does between his knees, leaning forward. What a miserable, miserable human being. And there are reports that he has been incredibly peevish uh, this week because it was all about H.W., and it was not about him. And when it was about him, <laughs> it was about Mueller and uh, the fact that the special prosecutor is clearly closing in on him. So I guess he has reason to be peevish. We have a call. Hello, caller. Hi, Lynn. Hi. Hey, um... When the um, I looked at those people sitting there, I saw a pedophile, a pervert, and a war criminal. And as I saw George W. get up there and was crying for his father, I thought, did he think about when he bombed Iraq on the false pretenses, killing babies and children of the Iraqi people, the tears that they cried? Or did he think about the time when, he, when we lost the soldiers, men and women, and dismembered a lot of them? Did he cry for that? Were the tears there? And I'm looking at Cheney in the background, another war criminal, both who should have been in prison. And people were acting like nothing happened. Let's scrub history once more. And that's how we do it. So eventually we'll say, as we will with the Vietnam War, it was a just thing, and it should have been done. And that's the way they work it. They keep scrubbing it, they keep scrubbing it, and that's what happens. So everything seems normal. And then we wonder why we got Donald Trump. The bar's been lowered so low 
that now we got this skunk in there. So it just keeps on going on. It just amazes me. It just amazes me. As TV scrubs it, MSNBC, all CNN, Fox, it doesn't matter. Let's scrub history. Let's forget about what they've done and just move on. Like everything's normal here in America. Pathetic. Pathetic people. Is there Have a, a good day. Okay, bye. I, I, I was going to ask him if there was any president who would pass muster. I mean, given the responsibilities of the job, where as commander-in-chief, yes, you do send people to fight and die, and you do have to make decisions, and you don't, you're just human. I'm not as... I'm sorry, I'm more forgiving than that. I mean, these people are just, they're people trying to do their best, working within the system, which in itself is created by imperfect humans, the system itself imperfect, run by imperfect humans, and sometimes bad humans. I, I can't be as angry as that about everything. I can't. Some days I can, I suppose, but I, I, I can't today. I'm sorry. I mean, we're human beings. Complicated. Good angels, bad angels. <laughs> I think that the truly bad people that were seated in those first two rows, there were two that I think of as truly bad people. And that's Donald Trump and Dick Cheney. And um, I think the others all tried. And I wouldn't put on anybody the responsibility of that job and to come out squeaky clean or having made no mistakes. And when you make mistakes at that level, there are extraordinary and dire consequences. The world is a complex, chaotic mess and... I, I don't know. I don't know what to say, but I, I, I found that way, 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 way over the top. Just saying. That's my opinion. Getting uh, back to Trump, there's a psychiatrist at Yale who keeps talking about how insane he is. And um, I don't know if this, uh, is this a man or a woman? I'm not sure because I, I don't know the uh, professor of psychiatry at Yale, Bandy, B-A-N-D-Y, Lee, L-E-E. -E. I, I don't know if that's male or, f oh yeah, it is female. It's female. Speaks for herself, not for Yale. Um, and she really, wow, wow, wow. She's fearful he's going to, as the noose starts tightening, the, as she's afraid, given what she thinks of his mental instability, that he's going to conceivably do something, you know, truly horrific. Somehow, start a war, do something where... Yeah, people, I mean, people are going to uh, die. Um, I don't know. She says this, the sense of grandiose omnipotence that he displays is especially appealing to the people who comprise his base because she sees people who are drawn to him 
as extremely emotionally needy. She says, no matter what the world says, he fights back against criticism. He continues to lie in the face of truth. And above all, he's still the president. What matters to his base is that he seems to be winning, not whether he's honest or law-abiding. And while this may seem puzzling to the rest of us, when you are a person overcome with feelings of powerlessness, this type of cartoonish, exaggerated force is often very appealing. It's a kind of primitive um, might-makes-right kind of view. And she says, and normally, in a normal development of a person, if they're going to be a relatively emotionally healthy person, that idea of that kind of that's what I want to be, that kind of power, that in developmental, I guess, psychology, children over the age of five are usually past that. So also these kind of strongman type uh, personalities, she says, are very, very appealing to a lot of people in times of uh, socioeconomic, turmoil, crisis, um, people are less rational, they're fearful, and that's his base, except for the rich fat cats who just like the fact that he's making them richer. So, when she was asked, what's your biggest concern, she says this. In my 20 years of studying personality structure while treating violent offenders, a concern I have is more and more of this personality type of Trump are taking on leadership positions. Not just in our politics, but in our corporation. It's, she says, 20 years ago, some of these men would be found in jails and prisons. And now they're running corporations and our country. And I have, I, actually, I've seen that posited before where they, w w psychologists have done like personality profiles of uh, sociopaths and personality profiles of uh, CEOs. And uh, the, <laughs> the, there ain't a lot of difference. There's not a lot of difference. And, and Trump fits into that too. And that's, that's what she's saying. Um, and she says, because these kind of people with these kind of personalities are acquiring power, public and private in our country, that means that a growing number of people will emulate their behavior in the general culture. Uh, she says, people who are emotionally wounded seek omnipotent parental figures, unable to find satisfaction for their inner needs. They keep pursuing ever greater power. And even if that's by grabbing on to a Donald Trump who is seeking, as he has, greater and greater power. She thinks he's really mentally ill. She said it is actually a tragedy that Trump cannot receive proper care, even as his disorder is on, dispo on display for the world to see. And instead he's surrounded by those who enable his illness and make use of his weaknesses to their own destructive ends. Vladimir Putin, North Korea, Prince of Saudi Arabia, and then all of the people around him. 
So I think, um, and then she says, you know, when you talk about his base, and I, I guess I mentioned this, don't just talk about like, you know, emotionally, uh, you know, stunted, uh, fearful, uneducated uh, white guys. Think also, she says, uh, of the richest Americans. She says they support him not in the same way. They support him for calculating, pragmatic, selfish reasons. You know, to hell with what he's doing to the country, the world, I'm getting richer. And she says, how is such a minority, 1%, able to control politics and to keep convincing 99%, well, they ain't convincing me, of the population to give up what it has so that it can grow richer? And they do it by distracting and manipulating the 99% through advertising, through hot-button issues. Fox News, reality TV, which explicitly employ psychological techniques to make the population more impulsive, more irrational, and ill-informed. And then she takes a swipe at her profession. She says, so, when the federally funded American Psychiatric Association, which, by the way, heavily depends on the pharmaceutical industry, says that psychiatrists should not comment on the president's mental stability or instability, we have to ask, is it protecting the psychological methods that are being used to manipulate the public so as to make it more unhealthy while blocking information that might restore its health? If mental health professionals were allowed to educate and inform the public more about psychological matters, then the population would be empowered. Maybe they wouldn't fall for a Donald Trump as easily. And she says Trump cannot stop, will not stop. She says the rallies he holds are like life's blood to him, and I, you can see that. You can see that. Um, I don't know. And then she says, yeah, the way he should be treated, He should be removed. Treatment of his condition involves removing the sick individual from others around him who are enabling him. Trump shows how powerful mental sickness is. His unfettered access to people through Twitter is as dangerous, she says, as his unfettered access to the nuclear codes since he is laying the groundwork for a culture of violence that can unleash epidemics of violence. This is why waiting for the next decision of voters in 2020 20 is itself dangerous and in fact reckless in its lack of understanding of the present danger this president poses. That's Yale psychiatry professor Bandy Lee. God, I mean, if she's right, we are so in trouble. Uh oh, Barbara, don't send me this stuff. This is scary. Uh, co-director of a program at the Brennan Center for Justice, uh, anyway, this, this is published in the Atlantic, uh, told MSNBC's Morning Joe, I guess today, that there is little to no congressional oversight over the president's emergency powers. And that could allow President Trump to declare martial law and even to shut down portions of the Internet. There is a vast set of laws, an entire parallel legal regime that becomes available to the president if he declares an emergency. 
We're talking about powers to shut down wire communications, to freeze America's bank accounts, to deploy the military to act as a domestic police force, and more. Now this is scary. That, this is scary. This law has been in place for more than 40 years. And I guess we never thought there'd be a lunatic in the White House. Congress has never voted on ending a state of emergency, so the oversight that it is supposed to have has never, I mean, been tested. He literally has an internet kill switch. One of the things we have to worry about in our current political environment is that Congress and the courts might not be willing to step in. You wonder why he's trying to pack the courts. So we have a system now where we, that gives the president an incredible amount of power and then just crosses its fingers that Congress and the courts will somehow step in, but you can't think that anymore. Not with this Congress and not with this Supreme Court. Yike! I'm just saying, yike! And then there's this. Did you <laughs> This too from the Washington Post. As soon as Donald Trump was elected, I'm literally in December of 2016, so he hasn't even taken office, the Saudi government, through lobbyists that they pay, reserved hundreds of rooms at Trump's Washington, D.C. hotel paying for an estimated 500 nights in just three months. And understand that these are rooms that go for over $700 a night. 500 nights. The, it is estimated that they spent over a quarter of a million dollars, which went right into Trump's pocket. This is the minute he, and all of this stuff is coming out because another case being brought by the, I think, uh, Attorney General of Maryland and a few, somebody else, um, uh, uh, in regard to the emol emoluments clause. Um, and what they did, they filled these rooms with veterans who were told that they were being brought there. Uh, they, they, the veterans didn't even understand what was going on. Um, veterans went to, they were given various messages to deliver to, they, they were brought, the veterans were put up in this fancy schmancy place. One of the veterans who was uh, interviewed for this article said, um, we didn't really understand. We, 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 were, we believed that the trips were organized by other veterans, but we were all puzzled because veterans groups don't spend money like we were spent. We had private hotel rooms, open bars, free dinners. And then he said in the course of one of his visits in, to the Trump Hotel, someone told him, that this was being paid for by a Saudi prince. And he said, oh, he figured it out then. So we're just being used to give Trump money. Yeah. They also were being used. They were brought to Capitol Hill and told to essentially told what to tell their own congresspeople where they were lobbying against a bill that the Saudi government did not want. So they corralled these veterans, wined and dined them. The veterans didn't, I mean, you have to, good God. 
It said this was reported by several news outlets last year. But, you know, again, in all the chaos of the Trump presidency, it was just a blip, oh, oh, and off it went because of some other horrific thing that happened, uh, you know, the next day. There were six trips during which the groups grew larger and the stays increased over time. And this is part of this lawsuit brought by the attorneys general in Maryland and the District of Columbia. Okay. Um, wow. The bill that they were protesting was uh, Congress had overridden a veto from President Barack Obama and passed a law the Saudis vehemently opposed, which was called Justice Against Sponsors of Terrorism Act. Yeah, I don't think the Saudis would like that much. Uh, the new law, backed by the families of 9-11 victims, opened the door to costly litigation alleging that the Saudi government bore some blame. Some blame? I mean, 15 of the 19 hijackers were Saudis. So in response, the Saudis tried something new to battle one of America's most revered groups, the September 11th families, they recruited allies from another revered group, veterans. And they were sent, these veterans got stuff that said, we want you to come to storm the hill to lobby against this law. Lodging at the Trump International Hotel, all expenses paid. My God. And all of this being made. The guy who sent this stuff out is a member of a law firm in Madison, Wisconsin. And he was being paid by the Saudi government. Wow. Again. I mean, I, wow. Wow. All right. Just saying. Uh, I need to go on a, a brief rant. Um, you know I have a dog now. And I... Uh, was walking him last night, and I almost, I almost, uh, I think, potentially ended up in the hospital because I slipped on ice on the sidewalk, and I was trying to be so careful because in my neighborhood, almost no one had cleared their sidewalks. And because it, the temperature is hovering, you know, right around the freezing point, things melted, then they froze. And I don't understand. I, if, if property owners know that that sidewalk is their responsibility and that if somebody who's walking on it slips, falls, hits their head, is killed, is disabled, breaks bones, that it's on them. And you would think that fear, that legal liability fear, if not just common, ordinary, um, helping out people who walk on the sidewalk, <laughs> that that would motivate people to clear their walks. I don't understand it. And I know it's not like any of the sidewalks I was walking on that the people inside the houses are like elderly and can't get out. I know who's in every one of those houses. I also know a man who lives on my street who was grievously injured about 10 years ago on the very sidewalk I went 
last night, grievously injured, a doctor. And I'm just saying to all of you, it's common courtesy. I mean, I'm, I'm assuming that the people in those houses don't walk on sidewalks. I don't see them walking on sidewalks much. And guys, I know it's not your intent to potentially kill or maim somebody. I, who've had a number of broken bones, surgeries, and traumatic injuries in my life, do not want another. And I'll tell you, if, God forbid, that were to happen, I will, I will go after whoever it is who didn't clear their walk. I'm serious. It's not that difficult. I really was, I was so rattled that, you know, I walked home with the dog like, like a geisha after that. It was like, like this and low to the ground. And we did not walk this morning. I just had him go out in the backyard. I mean, so I, I'm afraid because of the negligence of my neighbors. There's another street near me where people park their cars, and this happens in Pittsburgh a lot, park their cars on the sidewalk so that if you're walking on the sidewalk, you end up having to go into the street because the car, which is supposed to be in the street, is on the sidewalk. What the fuck is wrong with people? And this, by the way, is a street that is wide enough. I understand that in some real tight little city streets, you might have to cheat that. This is not such a... And I look at these people and I think, what are you thinking? This is my hostility. I have so much hostility for people around me. I just do. Like, why don't any of you ever think about what you're doing? Why, clearly, why don't you ever think about another human being? Sidewalks are for pedestrians. Streets are for the cars. Sidewalks are the responsibility of the homeowner. And if your sidewalk is a sheet of ice and somebody kills themselves or breaks bones, that's on you. Simple as that. We have a call. Hello, caller. Hi, Lynn. Hi. Hi, Lynn. It's free in Dubai. I don't have to worry about shoveling. Oh, I was just going to say, you took Dubai. (laughs) (laughs) I was thinking that right. Yeah, but remember, I went to school in Syracuse, and there I had to do it religiously. Yes, I bet. It's just. Well, I'll tell you one. Sorry, I I guess the connection is not so great. Uh, I'll just tell my story quickly and get off. But when I lived in Syracuse, uh, I, I had a dog, and. Uh, sometimes uh, when it was really, really snowy, we would go out the back door and we didn't really have a yard. So uh, my dog would sometimes, uh, you know, do her business back there. And uh, one time we shared a, a, a back parking lot with the neighboring house. And these homes were like very huge homes. Each floor would, would have three or four students and the landlords would rent out. And the landlord came over to me one day and he said, uh, you know, your dog going back there, you got to make sure you clean. I'm like, yeah, I do. But, you know, it depends on what she's doing. Some I can clean, some I can't. And then I said to him, I said, you know, the other day when I was walking my dog, I slipped and fell on your sidewalk because you weren't keeping it clear. Whereas if you look over at mine, it's extremely clear all the time. I was obsessive about it. And uh, he immediately shut up because he knew, uh, (laughs) you know, I had sprained my uh, knee on it. And he knew that to pursue anything further, he was going to get in a lot of trouble because he, you have to keep those sidewalks clear. That is correct. God, I'm so 
glad you have seconded me on this because I really, I, I came really close last night. To, you know, I'm an older woman with little brittle bones. I don't need a fall. Um, and I, I, I didn't realize how icy it was. Uh, I also have these things called yak tracks that I stick, I have on one pair of boots that are sort of like almost cleats that dig into uh, the ice. Mm. And I wear those trying desperately not to hurt myself. But uh, damn, damn, if I, I really, I was felt murderous last night. I really did. I was thinking even yeah, of writing, yeah, well, a, it, you know, I was thinking of writing a little note and hanging it, you know, slipping it under the, in the mailboxes of all the people on the street. Yeah, well, it's a law. They, <laughs> they are required to, I know in Syracuse, I, I, you know, it was absolutely a law and I took it very seriously. You know, I did not want anyone slipping. And, and sometimes in the past, I had actually done my neighbor's uh, sidewalk. I, I don't know why I, I hadn't done it that time. Um, but, I, you know, I had done it quite often uh, for him. And that's why I was a little upset when he came over to yell at me for something kind of minor, uh, you know, when in fact he had uh, abdicated this major yeah. uh, thing. And in Syracuse, I also, I had really good, uh, these Italian boots, I still have them here, but of course I never get to use them. Uh, <laughs> and uh, I mean, you just got used to it in Syracuse. You just got used to it. I, I forget all the jokes. We had a lot of different jokes about it all. Um, you know, the different streets and the the ice and. Yeah, but it was uh, it was a task just to get to campus some days. I mean, you had to really exert a lot of energy to get there. I I had ski poles, uh, you know, the ones you use that you, when you go skiing, and I had yeah. to use those sometimes when I would walk to campus. Wow. Just to keep myself steady on all the ice, you know. Yep, and try and, and also add to my uh, jeopardy um, uh, a rambunctious uh, dog who's on a leash, who sometimes, you know, if he sees, yep. will bolt, and I, I mean, I'm in real, real uh, potential uh, trouble. But I'm, uh, yeah. Yes. I'm, I'm on the absolutely on the warpath about this. Always wonderful to hear from you in sunny Dubai. Yeah, thanks a Free. lot, Lynn. Talk to you soon. All righty. Thank you. Bye. Bree started listening to me when he was a college student at Syracuse, as far as I know, unless he was listening before, maybe. When he was in, I don't know. I don't know. And now he's this guy who's all over the world all the time. Jeez. Fascinating. Um, Kurt says, uh, my catchphrase to describe these unaware folks is the world is full of people who leave their shopping carts in the middle of the aisle. Yeah. Well, every once in a while, I think that might be me. I don't know. Some We all screw up sometimes, right? But, uh, no. You know, and these are the same people that go out of their way, that pay people to have these green lawns with nary a, uh, anything other than blades of grass in it, you know, that at, take extraordinary care with that kind of thing. Uh, you know, probably use pesticides and God knows what else. And they won't shovel a sidewalk. I mean, come on. Oh dear. What how much time do I have here? Um Oh bit Thomas Altizer. He's the he was a academic who uh wrote a book uh, that caused Americans to go nuts. Um and he says here was one of the country's most hated, misunderstood, radical, and prophetic voices. Um, he wrote a book suggesting that God was dead. <laughs> and it caused such a stir that 
there's a famous Time magazine cover that says, Is God dead? I, I, I remember it. Uh, I remember it. That came out in 1966. April of 66. Um, and this guy just was <laughs> raked over the coals because he... Uh, he taught at he taught religion at Emory University uh, in Atlanta, and it, it's lucky he wasn't run out of town on a rail. Ninety-seven uh, percent of adult Americans at that time said they believed in God, and so there was just this huge backlash. He Merv Griffin uh, had him on his t talk show. And the audience, like, booed him off the set. He couldn't even, I mean, I've never seen anything like that. He said the response was a violent one, forcing the director to close the curtains, ordered the band to play forcefully, and after the event, a crowd greeted me at the stage door, uh, threatening me. Yeah, nothing like, uh, yeah, God-fearing people to... <laughs> irate that you should say such a thing never mind freedom god fearing americans right so uh you know to hell with freedom of speech and everything else um and another guy says he thinks that evangelical christianity really started to soar in a reaction to this idea that God is dead. He wrote in his memoir, while I offended many permanently and lost every hope of a foundation grant or a major academic appointment, I have never regretted the offense that I gave. He died uh, last week at the age, oh, in Stroudsburg, PA. He was 91 years old, and man, is he a good-looking man. Jeez. Let me show you the guy, and of course, he's got the proverbial prof professorial pipe. Can you see that? He handsome. Speaking of God is dead, Einstein's God letter, uh, a famous famous letter in which he too questioned <laughs> the existence of God. Uh, he wrote it the year before his death, um, in, and it sold for $2.9 million yesterday. It's a letter he wrote to a German philosopher, and um, in it he rejected... He doesn't, he did, in the letter, he doesn't really totally reject the idea of a God, but he rejects the idea of a God that most people believe in, a God that, like, listens to your prayers and uh, gives a hoot about you in everyday life um, and stuff like that. He, he was more inclined to acknowledge that there, you could call God uh, uh, that's whatever some kind of creator thing. And he, he thought organized religion was ridiculous. He says in the letter, the word God is for me nothing but the expression of and product of human weakness. And the Bible, a collection of venerable but still rather primitive legends. No interpretation, no matter how subtle, can for me change anything about this he wrote, and he felt that way about his own Judaism as well as Christianity as well as all of it, although in the letter he said he was proud to be a Jew, but the religion itself, meh. So there's that. Milton says, your point about untended sidewalks is well taken. Yeah, I dare anybody to argue with me on it. Come, one of the uh, writers uh, here on City Paper, um, 
was a snow angel. I remember when he told me that he'd signed up to be someone's snow angel, I thought, my God, does that say something about you? Anyway, Milton writes, your point about is well taken. I used to work at the Children's Institute. Well, that's in my neighborhood. I had to walk from the intersection of Shady and Forbes to Shady and Wilkins. That's where Tree of Life is, Shady and Wilkins. Unfortunately, that corner now is sort of impressed on everybody. Days after a snowfall, not a single sidewalk between Forbes and Wilkins would be shoveled. Yet every morning after a snowfall, I'd field phone calls from the neighbors in the surrounding Children's Institute asking when the walk surrounding the hospital would be shoveled so they could safely walk their dogs. This would be literally within 10 minutes of sunrise sometimes as the snow still fell. The rehab, the Children's Institute, as well as the Tree, tree of Life, were very conscientious. I can attest to that about clearing the sidewalks around their properties. Yet private homeowners who knew that many elderly people used the walks to travel to and from the Squirrel Hill Shopping District did not. Yes, and Milton says the same thing. And in summer, the same homeowners pay hundreds of dollars weekly to maintain their pristine lawns. And let me tell you, these are people who write, never walk on a sidewalk. They get in their cars, in their garages, and pull out, and they don't... I'm getting angrier as I think about this. I really am getting pissed off. Uh, you know, now that I've returned to dog walking, <laughs> I am a user of sidewalks, and I... I don't like feeling so vulnerable. And I, I shouldn't have to if people would just do the right thing. I really think I am going to write a letter. I mean, there's all these things now, that neighborhood, what do they call it, uh, you know, app. Do you belong to anything like that? And I, I'm sure some people post on that every once in a while. Um, you know, gosh, guys, will you please shovel your sidewalks? And they don't. Nothing. All right. Uh, I have other stuff here, but I don't want to. I think all of it is. Do you ever have a waterbed? <laughs> there was an article about the guy who invented the waterbed. That, too, is from 1966. Um, he sold the, one of some of the first waterbeds to one of the Smothers brothers. He can't remember which one. He sold one to a nudist colony. This guy was in San Francisco. Sold one to one of the Jefferson Airplane and to Hugh Hefner. Big shock there. Um... And in New York City and a lot of other cities, I frankly remember, you know, re landlords, ref the, it, they, it says here that still in New York City, most standard leases in New York still contain a no waterbed rider because there was concerns of uh, floors collapsing under their weight, water pouring out of, uh, out of them, and blah, 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 blah. Uh, in 1991, one of every five mattresses sold was a waterbed. I'm shocked. I slept on one only once, and I found it very odd. I really found it odd. But just a few years later, waterbed sales were... And um, just saying... That's a blast from the past. The waterbed, ladies and gentlemen, and I have to go because a few people around here have to catch buses, okay? Shovel your walk. 
Hey, my brother's on tomorrow. My brother is on tomorrow. My brother is on tomorrow. My brother is on tomorrow. And it'll be fun. I gave Susan the day off. Okay? See you tomorrow. Lynn Cullen Live, Monday through Friday from 10 a.m. to 11 a.m. and archived at pghcitypaper.com. The opinions expressed on Lynn Cullen Live are those of the host and do not necessarily reflect the viewpoints of Pittsburgh City Paper or its advertisers.